Were you feeling the WWE fever this weekend, Jesse? Uh, there was only one thing on my mind all weekend, and that was where the fuck's The Rock and how did Roger Cook fail to <laughs> entice him to Western Australia in time for the Elimination Chamber. Um, I know that you were um, champing at the bit to get into Optus Stadium. Jared, you would have given almost anything to be there, right? Look, I must admit, I actually I, I would have loved to be there. And I did... Uh, I did watch the Elimination Chamber on TV. I was going to watch. Huh. I was like, oh, I'll watch half an hour of this. Yeah. And I ended up watching all three and a half hours. And I, I get quite into it. I must admit that um, when I was a kid, I probably watched more than my fair share of WWE. So it was a bit of a blast. For is, is, is Logan Paul or Jake Paul, I forget which one, are they, like, I mean, obviously it's all questionably legit anyway as the editor of the West Australian sort of claimed to his peril during the week. But, like, yeah. can, he, can he fight? Is he, is he any good? He's definitely got the skills to put on an entertaining show as a WWE performer, that's for sure. Right. He was, yeah. Uh, yeah, he definitely had the crowd fired up yeah. uh, with his hatred of Perth. You Google like the top 10 things to do as a tourist in Perth. And number one is go visit an island full of rats. Not so different from you people, huh? I seem to remember about a year ago him coming to Perth and talking about how much he loved it. But, uh, <laughs> This time around, he was not different, a fan. story, yeah. He got the brass knuckles out at the end huh. and uh, they look like they might have been made out of polystyrene, I'm not sure. But, um, <laughs> Very good. Who but was yeah, the star of the show? The star of the show, probably just even by his absence, it was The Rock, you know, yeah. and you could tell that the crowd were kind of hoping that The Rock would uh, would rock up. But uh, I read an interesting – see, I've, I've, I've gone full in. I was reading an interesting kind of wrestling blog about how – there was no way The Rock was ever coming because if he was, they would have promoted it because they hadn't sold out all the tickets, but they didn't want to say he wasn't, which made me think it was an interesting for Roger Cook to get in on the gimmick. I don't know. I mean, that was obviously pretty lame. But, um, oh, it was incredibly lame. Um, yeah, for those <laughs> for those who didn't say, the, um, the Premier of Western Australia wrote to Mr. Rock or um, or The Rock exclamation mark as, um, as he hand wrote um, in the intro um, at WWE corporate headquarters and, um, informing The Rock, much to the Premier's regret, that he um, felt he needed to inform him. There'd been a lot of out-of-towners talking trash in the lead-up to the Elimination Chamber and he was sorry to have to inform The Rock. He felt much of this trash talk had been directed at The Rock himself. Um, Talking about, I don't know, it's kind of normally you'd expect the Premier of WA to refer to himself in the third person rather than some sort of <laughs> oblivious wrestler slash movie star on the other side of the world. Um, i got to say, I, had, I was thinking about it this morning. Like, if that was McGowan, 100% The Rock would have come. Like, there's no way McGowan would you write reckon? a letter to The Rock <laughs> and not somehow manifest the guy in well, Perth on Saturday night. He wouldn't have done it if he didn't yeah. know he was already coming. I feel like that's the weird thing here. And, yeah. like, it didn't really do that good numbers on social media, I noticed. But he wasn't the only politician getting in on the WWE mania. Uh, Rita Safiotti had a little bit of a back and forth with uh, Logan Paul. Oh, really? And there was I missed a, that. How did, yeah, that, how did that go? Well, there was a photo of them talking and apparently it was her talking to him about how great WA is and she oh, said yeah. that deep down she knows that uh, that he thinks WA is a great place. And uh, Basil Zemplis was also parading around with a uh, title belt at one point as well. <laughs> so everyone was getting in on the action. And, of course, you've got to look to the, the kind of master of... Uh, political dark arts who is in the WWE Hall of Fame, Mr. Donald Trump himself, who's made many a cameo over the years <laughs> very, very in the true. WWE. What was it? Uh, Sha- shaving John Senna's head at one point? Uh, shaving Vince McMahon's head, oh, that's actually. That's the one. That's the one. And yep. uh, Vince McMahon, who now is 
I don't know if you've seen this, but over the last couple of months, there've been some very serious uh, very sex trafficking yeah. Not allegations. Trafficking. Wow, that's, that's yeah, like that's hardcore. Very serious. Yeah, right. very Jesus. serious. Right. So, um, yeah, I think they have quite a close relationship, Trump yeah. and um, Vince McMahon. But um, it was good. They had the uh, Richard Wally doing a welcome to country at yeah. the WWE. So very uh, progressive of the WWE before probably the largest display of Australian flags I've seen since a mm. Tony Abbott prime ministerial press conference. So uh, yeah, right. there were flags, Australian flags everywhere. Um, I wonder what the right-wing press made of that. I'm sure the West were unstudiously quiet about any any crowd reaction or heckling yeah. during that part of proceedings. I'm, I, I'm sure they were respectful for, for those yeah, it looked, minutes. It looks so, yeah, it yeah. looks so definitely on the uh, on the TV. Um yeah. I mean, look, you know, the West went pretty mad for this. Um, I think the day before the kind of uh, so-called stoush between Austin Theory and Anthony DeSegli, the editor of the West Australian, broke, I think I messaged you earlier in the day and said that the West front page was turning into a WWE fan blog and that was before it really kind of uh, stepped into gear. Yeah, I mean, I suspect part of that might be that we missed out on Taylor Swift, so this was just sort of the next best thing. We had to fill the front page with some kind of like glitzy, glam, entertainment garbage for for most of the week. Um, I noted that Media Watch last night reckoned that the Herald Sun and the Daily Telegraph between them have put out 27 Taylor front pages in the past month or something, and I I reckon the West single-handedly would be coming close to that with WWE. Um, Joe Spaniolo, the um, the long-time political editor of the Sunday Times, was actually claiming that um, the paper was solely responsible for luring the wrestlers here <laughs> in the first place and that his uh, his front page story back last year was um, was the thing that had twisted Roger Cook's arm. But not the rocks, obviously. It wasn't, wasn't enough to get... Um, not enough for the rock, yeah. Enough. Next time, Joe. Um, look, I've, I've got to confess, I choose to go see the uh, the WWE over Taylor Swift. I think, uh, I think we did well there. Wow. So. wow. <laughs> okay. Um, no front pages on Rafa in that time. I, I, I don't think in any of those uh, publications. But uh, no, not to, not to be surprised by. No, no, we, we we like to keep our keep our eye on the um on the local prize. Um, and what was it in this? Like, what were they actually competing for? What was the point? It's of- the road to WrestleMania, Jesse. <laughs> this is the qualifier for WrestleMania. <laughs> this is the 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 second biggest wrestling event in the world. Yeah, so, shit, fuck, wow, yeah. amazing. Um, one guy, one of the wrestlers, walked in with a koala in his arm, which I thought was an interesting touch, given that uh, they don't, we don't really have those here in West Australia. And it was, uh, I don't know, I felt quite sorry for it. But it was just, it was quite kind of weird as well, seeing like the backstage area of Optus Stadium, where I've like done hospitality shifts, being part of a uh, very theatrical wrestling kind of plot lines and stuff. So I, I got a kick out of it. Yeah, right. Oh, well, um, any, any, any. Observant protesters or would be protesters um, take heed. That's um, if you want to get on the pitch at Optus, coming down the coming down the WWE runway might be the easiest way to do it. Yeah, it's easy to see why it's Australia's sunniest capital city, Perth. It's home to beautiful temperatures, friendly locals, both two-legged and four-legged, like the adorable Quokas residing on Rottnest Island. This is the last place on earth. This is a podcast about the view from out west. My name is Jared Mazza, and uh, my co-host is Jesse Noakes. And Hi. today we're going to uh, bring everyone an interview. Jesse, do you want to tell us about uh, who we're going to hear from today? Yeah, so it's our third episode, 
and our first interview. And we've got um, Baladong Noongam and Des Blurton, who both of us know very well. Um, Des is a well-known community leader in WA, uh, up and down the state. He's also often off on national trips to, to Tasmania and the East Coast um, to lend his voice to campaigns over there. Most immediately, he's the deputy chair of the Deaths in Custody Watch Committee in WA. Um, Des is in a fairly unique position of having beef, having both been a prisoner and a prison guard in his time. Um, straddle both sides of that divide. He's also got family um, currently in prison. So I think we're going to start the interview by hearing a little from Des's brother, Fred, who's currently doing time in Casuarina and spoke to me um, a little earlier today by phone um, to explain a bit about what it's been like in there because the context for this conversation immediately is a run of very, very, very hot days in WA. We've spoken about it on previous episodes and some of the causes um, for that in the climate crisis, but one of the immediate symptoms is that prisoners, as you've spoken about before, Jared, are baking in um, record heat. And so the kind of the added pressure and tension that applies to people, especially Aboriginal prisoners in, um, in jails up and down the state is, is pretty intense. And so Fred can kind of give us a bit of a rundown of that. And then Des, um, you know, has been across this issue for a very long time, is running a number of campaigns that touch on it closely and um, I think it was really only appropriate to um, to start proceedings to give our first interview birth to um, to Des Blurton, who I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more from in um, in months to come. So, firstly, here's some audio from that phone call with Des's brother, Fred. I had water on the floor because it was summertime and it was hot. Then um, they took me down the back to Unit One because I had water in my cell. I was like being um. I was being, um, um, well, I was hot and I, I was soaking myself down. Then, um, all of a sudden, this and that, and then I went, because of water, then I went to Unit 1, and then I was in this cell, then I went to that cell, and fucking, then, um, then it's the officer, he sort of, um, he sort of, um, said our mental health was deteriorating, so they, they took me down to, um, Unit 1, um, D-Wing, um, they call it MPU or something, and, um, I went to the cell and, and I was there for about five weeks, six weeks and a, three weeks, five weeks. So I'm still like losing my memory. No TV in a face cell. Then um, my toilet was blocked. Then um, I think we got, we're going to lock down in the doors now. Yeah, I've got to go here because it's a muster. Des, we just heard um, your brother on the phone from prison telling us about what he's experienced in there recently. Um, during this record summer. Can you tell us a bit about, firstly, what it's like hearing your brother kind of share those share those words and experiences from inside with us? Yes. Um, you know, I just had that conversation uh, with uh, my brother and to hear the stories that's coming out of that uh, prison is, is, you know, it's unimaginable that uh, our people are being... Uh, treated in a hum- inhumane way, um, inhumane conditions. Um, to be him to be taken down the back for two months with no TV, that's mental torture. That's mental torture on anyone. Um, I don't know how my brother is, is, is getting on with these mental illnesses and that. Um, there's, it's It's wrong that he is being 
in a position where he cannot do nothing. He he wants to 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 you know to get out, but it's hard. It's hard when he is being punished, and I we don't mind if someone's is being disciplined, but when the prison don't know what to do with prisoners who have mental illnesses and, and being pushed down the back and being left there, that's torture, torture, torture. What's your understanding of why he was put in solitary confinement down the back? Why? What? What did he do to cause that to happen? Like, what was it? What was the circumstances around that? Well, over the last uh, week, uh, we had forty degrees and up, and, and and it was a build up to that. It's just getting hotter and hotter for the prisoners in jail. In jail, it's it's not a good place to be in a small block and there's no ventilation, there's nothing. There's nothing that's going to uh, help the prisoners in there except water. And that's why my brother is being taken down the back because he put water on himself in that cell. I can't imagine if someone doesn't do that to keep themselves cool. And now he's saying that the door got flicked open and two or whatever officers ran in and dragged him down to the back, all because he wanted to keep cool. Because in there at the moment, it's inhumane conditions when they cannot uh, accommodate for prisoners when the temperature is exceeding 40 degrees. Is your brother's experience an isolated case, do you think, or is it? getting more and more common for prisoners to be in these jails, First Nations, men and women, with the temperatures rising and, you know, tensions boiling over. Do you feel like this is the sort of thing that's kind of fairly commonplace in the WA prison system, in your experience? Yeah, well, I've been hearing it from other people as well, that, you know, the the temperatures in there must be extreme and, and the conditions in there is 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 not fit for human to be in a cell it's not a it's not an isolated uh uh incident because our people are getting dragged down to the back for no reason at all um and, and they don't know why they're down there we need our people out we need them out and, and the only way we can have them out is by making this uh government accountable for putting our people in inhumane conditions and especially our children um you know they they don't need to be brought down from uh country to be put in in, in a cell down in here on budja kids need to be on country also our men need rehabilitation there's nothing in there my brother said that he's been in there and he'd never seen one aboriginal worker in that facility there's no one in there that are advocating for our prisoners because no one doesn't want to do it it's just a prisoner death in custody is more than willing to step into those shoes and monitor these situations because we want to help the the system and we want to help our people we we can't just have them in there and and, and nothing is being done about it we need to know and monitor our own people in those systems.
you spoke about deaths in custody. Um, you're the deputy chair of the Deaths in Custody Watch Committee, WA. Can you tell us a bit about your journey and what led you to be in that position, sort of advocating and organising to try and to try and end these these conditions and these experiences for your brothers and sisters? Yeah, um, my journey is a is a journey that I will treasure because I've done a a lot of uh, homelessness and I also was a prison officer on the inside and I only done that for a year because my spirit told me that I should not belong in that system. So I, I, I acknowledge my journey that I was there and I take those experiences and I bring that to deaths in custody where it's, it's just wrong that our people can be treated like that. I myself um, are willing to do what needs to be done. We we cannot we cannot wait for uh, anything to be done by the government because it's it's not just about money being splashed around. It's about solutions, 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 and we offer those solutions to uh, to uh, the government. Um, I I won't give up about fighting for my people and I've done a lot of work with yourself Jesse and um you know I acknowledge our journey as as strong and 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 it just gives me strength knowing that I can help my people knowing that I can make a change knowing that they I am there for them it's hard when you you know you get a lot of a bit of criticism but I I accept that I accept criticism because I'm a community leader I try and lead by example and, um, you know, I, I urge everyone to support each other, to support each other, support grassroots movements, support that, because the grassroots are the ones who's going to get that voice through. And I'm willing to use my voice for that. Is this an issue that affects Aboriginal people more than the general population? Like, what's, what's it like as a Baladong Noongar man community leader, like you've said? Deputy Chair, Deaths in Custody Watch Committee, seeing and hearing so many of your mob in and out of the prison system. Is it something that kind of really hits home for you personally as a First Nations man and as a traditional custodian of this country? Yeah, it does hit home because our people are being incarcerated at a highest level. There's got to be more solutions than that. The solutions to our people isn't in a box. Our people need to be on country. Our people need to learn culture. Our people need to learn language. It's not about putting them in jail. There's got and and with the juveniles, there's got to be more rest, restorative justice. It can't be just about putting people in boxes, cells, putting them in cells, putting them in other institutions. the The government needs to step up. The government needs to step up. And it's not about just building more prisons and bringing more private sectors to run those prisons. You've talked a lot about the issues that are in there and possible solutions. What's um, Deaths in Custody Watch Committee pushing for? Like, what, what, what are you campaigning for? You've got a lot of experience, both sides of the fence, prisoner and prison guard. You've come out, you've, you know, you've got a um, strong pedigree as a community leader and you've been campaigning across a range of issues when it comes to imprisonment of Aboriginal people 
and deaths in custody. What um what are the moves and the political sort of changes that you're you're seeking to to affect, and how are those campaigns coming along? Yeah, well, uh, we've uh, got our campaign, and we we will relaunch that uh, in the coming months. And that uh, campaign is to ban all white juries. Uh, we've got support all over the nation about that, and I think even the University of New South Wales had a uh, had a look at that at the all white jury and criticised the all white jury. That that there is a critical campaign. That is a very important campaign when it comes to our people in the justice system. We we need to have our say on these juries because um, in the jurors' oath that they have to be tried by your peers. So anyone from the Australian citizen, the colony, is not our peers. We want to be tried by our own First Nation peers. Let we got to have our say, and, and 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 that's important. But also very important is when authorities, such as police, prison officers, and anyone of the likes, when we have a death in custody, when we have a death in custody, that is murder, because they have a duty of care. They are failing miserably. We can't let this happen. That's why we're pushing for the ban all white juries so that when a prison police officer or, or prison, um, prison officer comes to court and a trial has been sent, such as up there in Yundamu, we need to have our say. We can't let the all white jury determine if this police officer gets off or not. We need to have our say on behalf of our communities. And if this person pulls the trigger, so be it. He goes to jail, just like everyone else. Just about um, an hour ago before we sat down to have this chat, I was on the phone with Bernadette Clark, um, whose sister was killed by a cop in Geraldton back in 2019. I actually remember we were in my office in the city, and I remember just in the corridor there when um, Bernie came in the morning after her sister had been killed and just kind of collapsed into my arms in the corridor then and then a couple of years later um, sitting through every day of the Supreme Court murder trial only to watch that officer get acquitted of all charges as you say by a jury without a single Aboriginal person on it. You were there at the court for a lot of that as well. I think you were outside the court after the verdict waving that flag. Um, what was it like? As a, I mean I, I was you know hard enough for me as a Wadula sort of sitting with the family through that and, and walking with them in the years and months leading up to it, what's it like as a First Nations person kind of witnessing that justice system or lack of first hangs? It's something we're seeing playing out in the Northern Territory at the moment with an inquest into the Uendamu killing, as you say, and Zachary Rolfe, the cop there. And then it's just been announced that in July, um, Bernie's sister, the inquest for her is going to be held here in Perth. Um, so, yeah, can you tell us a little about, as, a, as an Aboriginal man, as a community leader, what it's like seeing your people going through these legal systems and not getting any justice? Yeah, first of all, yeah, rest in dream time, JC. Yes, I was there at, at the courthouse, and I was screaming at the front, ban all white juries, ban all white juries, ban all white juries. And someone come up to me, and and said, Des, the family's in there, and, and you know don't, don't want to hear you know it's, you're upsetting them, you know they feel 
that you're upsetting them or whatever. I'll look straight at this person. I said, how do you think they're going to feel when this police officer gets off, it's got free? What, what's going to happen then? She couldn't answer me. Couldn't answer this person. So it's just, it's just we, we want to have or we think that we should trust in this justice system. No, no, no. Until we have our culture, our law presented in these, we're not going to get justice. We need our people in these juries. I go to that courthouse and I see, when we're petitioning in that, I see the juries come out, all out having a cigarette, and I say, look over there, not one black person there. Our people should be represented on all juries, all juries, as this is our land. This is our land. All juries should have an Aboriginal person that is willing to go in there and, and talk about all what's happening because the, the magistrates are just locking our people away just like that without a care. These people should be accountable too for, for just um, fascist laws. This, that's just going to push our people away at any given time. Our people don't dress the best. Our people aren't really presentable. But that's your presentation. We don't, we, all we want is our, our land and our kids and a home roof over our head because we can't even get that. Our roof, we live in homelessness. Our kids are getting taken away from us and we never get justice in the justice system. That's um, a whole list of issues there that affect Aboriginal people way, way, way more than they affect any other group in this country. Um, some people might say child removal, homelessness, deaths in custody, they're kind of, you know, they're, they're different issues. They're different, like, categories under closing the gap or whatever. You kind of tend to campaign across a, a wide range of issues. Can you sort of speak a little about how um, you see those issues kind of all coming together and all springing from the same place or kind of causing the same problems to continue? Yes, they're using incarceration as a, like I said before, dispossession tool where they dispossess a man or they dispossess one of our matriarchs, a woman, and now the family is at, is, is at risk. This is what I mean, that they can incarcerate us at any little uh, misdemeanors. Misdemeanors and we, we, get, we get jailed. And, and a lot of these fault is these uh, police officers riding around on bicycles, just handing out move-on notices like it's lollies, like they're just chucking it out. And, and then you got our kids roaming around in the city and then you got police coming in. They should not be monitoring our children. Police should never monitor our children because our children are at risk when they engage with police. It all... It all it all comes together because once a black is homeless, he could end up in jail and then he can end up as a death in custody all because he was just homeless or he just got in for fine or driving without a license. These are misdemeanor charges and, and then there's a fatal outcome that comes out of it. Families get ripped apart. They don't know what we go through. They don't know what we go through 
to hold up our pick up the pieces and try and rebuild. The trauma is just is just is just unbearable. Our children getting taken away. They can't be taken away and given to non-Indigenous people. That's wiping away our culture. Genocide again. We want our children to be known that this is who you are, identity, not loss of identity. we got to build their spirits up. And, and, and everything is disconnected. Homelessness, jail, and our children. There is nothing that's stopping these people just going in and taking them. The police need to, to do more cultural awareness. What, six days or six hours and they've done a cultural awareness and all of a sudden they're, they're, uh, they're experts at our people. No, 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 no. They need more people. We need more Aboriginal people in these justice systems. We need more Aboriginal people on the juries. We need more Aboriginal people monitoring our kids in, in, in prison. And, and they put them in, in, in where? In Casarina. How can you put kids in, in a maximum security of Australia? How can you do that? How can you uh, justify yourself, the West Australian government, by placing children in a maximum security with long-term murderers, whatever, and they're in there with them. That's a mirror image. They're going to mirror that image. They're in there watching it. Our kids should, our kids should never be exposed to that. I just want to rest in three times as a little fellow just you know, passed, took, took his life. It's just they don't want to be in there. The children don't want to be in there. They can't just put up with the ongoing mental games, the ongoing torture and the ongoing inhumane conditions in that systems, in the jails. Just lastly, what needs to happen to make that change? How do you, how do you stop this cycle continuing? What can people like you and me, what can the Premier, what can the Prime Minister, what can the average punter listening to this do if they want change? You have run campaigns yourself you've campaigned on homelessness you've campaigned on cultural heritage and climate issues it sounds like everything's kind of like wrapped together in one big thread in your mind if people want to start pulling at that thread a bit and trying to unravel some of these complex issues what do you reckon the sort of the first step is that people can take that's a very hard question jess as we we we, we never created this problem we don't created this problem so how can we find solutions for the problems that we did not create. That's a hard one. But I can say this. When we release our ban or white juries, I would like everyone all over our tribal lands, from Buja to Nam to, to Murray land up there in Queensland and Larrakee up there in Northern Territory, get behind us. Get behind us because if we get this ban or white jury through, then our people will be heard our people will be heard in trials in any trials when it comes to public inquests anything at least we get our voice forward and in terms of everything else the government needs to just stop doing it stop taking our kids stop locking our people up 
Stop it. Our men, women and children are humans. They belong on Buja. They belong on country. They belong on tribal lands with family. We need everyone as a collective to start moving in the right the right direction for everyone. CTG, closing the gap, is just getting wider and wider. I don't even know why these people speak about this because it just gets wider and wider. How do they know the solutions? How do they know how to close the gap? Come speak to grassroots. Come yarn with elders. Give us. Give us access to prisons. Give us access to justice systems. Give us access to our children. That's the solutions. It's to stop doing it and give our people back because we are not uncivilized. We are the we we are one of the most respectful people on this planet. Given what colonization has done to us, it it, it didn't make us good people. We don't want to work in your system. We don't want to be slaves. We want to roam our land in peace, not by racially profiling our people every chance that you get just because you've got a gun and a taser and you've got backup. No. Treat our people with respect. Treat our people with dignity. That's the least you can do is treat our mob fair. So that was Des Blurton there. Uh Deputy Chairperson of the Deaths in Custody Watch Committee, uh, speaking to Jesse this afternoon. Uh, and as you said at the start, Jesse, we've both uh, worked pretty closely with Des over a number of years now. Um, I'm curious what you think about the kind of current political situation we're in with some of the things Des is talking about. There's some kind of solutions he talked about there, things like uh, ban on all white juries even some quite straightforward things about um, police training and prison operations that you'd think would be pretty easy to implement. But I don't know about you, but it kind of feels to me like we're a little bit further away from some of this stuff than we were perhaps a couple of years ago. I mean, obviously, there's the Black Lives Matter movement in 2020, and it really felt like there was some political movement on death and custody here in Australia and Western Australia at that time. But the past year, obviously, there's been kind of the big debacle of the voice referendum here in WA. There's been quite a lot of controversy around Aboriginal cultural heritage. So I feel like on some of these First Nations issues, it's hard to gauge where we are, but we may be perhaps in a worse place than we were maybe two or three or four years ago. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, if you take the stats in the Closing the Gap reports to sort of to be an arbiter or a metric and I mean you know I'm not quite sure how much um, value the grassroots community would necessarily place in some of those numbers but there the gaps only ever widening as, as Des alluded to and that is borne out by the latest results from um, from a couple of weeks back um, and I think with with respect to the referendum result um, obviously the campaign that Des is most passionate about at the moment um, about on all white juries is all about giving Aboriginal people a voice on decisions that affect them most. In other words, in Des's example, giving people who are facing significant prison terms or custodial sentences um, the chance to have their own community sort of decide or at least contribute to assessing um, any alleged offending and what might be an appropriate punishment for it. Um, 
And I think possibly, if anything, those kind of more discrete, specific, localised measures via legislation or otherwise might be um, where things are headed in terms of um, reforms in the Indigenous space. Obviously, the voice was kind of generally considered to have been too vague, too broad, too nebulous to land or hit home or allow people the confidence to kind of to connect with it in the first place and then feel feel secure to kind of to vote for it. And that applies to both, you know, white and black communities. There were plenty of grassroots black fellas um, who didn't trust the voice when push came to shove. Um, Lydia Thorpe famously, of course, campaigned against it from the progressive left. And I remember Lydia saying at the time her decision had been motivated by the failures of government, especially the Albanese government, to make any progress on the um, deaths in custody Royal Commission recommendations or the bringing them home, child removals reports, and she made the point that the only thing the Albanese government had committed to in discussions with her prior to her deciding not to back the voice was to keep a tally of the numbers of deaths in custody, which she described as counting the body bags as they came out of prison. That was the only thing the government was willing to give ground to while, you know, the several hundred recommendations largely set um, unactivated. So, I mean, something like Des is proposing is possibly a a little more, um, you know, bite off something closer to what you can chew um, and has more uh, material impact on the ground, certainly, you know, according to the community he represents. Um, in terms of whether we're going forwards or backwards, yeah, I tend to agree. There's certainly no no indication that things are getting any better. Um, I still think the appetite's there. I don't think that's gone away. I think it's just a question of marrying sort of grassroots demand with something that the ruling class can actually kind of parcel up and, and sell and then deliver. Mm, yeah, and I think we've seen pretty clearly over the last year that what they are willing to deliver is not not kind of the fundamental things that people are asking for. Um, another person who was a strong campaigner against The Voice and has also been part of the campaign for a ban on all white juries, especially in deaths and custody cases, is uh, the Yundamu elder Ned Hargraves, who uh, is a relative of Kumunjai Walker. Mm. Um, who was tragically shot in the Northern Territory some years ago now. And, of course, um, finally over the last couple of days, that police officer who uh, pulled the trigger, Zachary Rolfe, has faced up to the coronial inquest. That was meant to happen ages ago. It was meant to only take a few months, but it's taken about 18 months, I think, mm. now by this point. And uh, Rolfe was on the stand yesterday and he kind of said that, you know, that there was this terrible culture of racism in the Northern Territory Police, that there was frequently racist language used on a kind of day-to-day basis. He denied that that had made him act in a racist way, but he also said that um, other police officers who'd fronted the commission had lied about the culture within the Northern Territory Police. And what was what was his sort of argument there? How did, how did that assist his quote-unquote defence? I think he was kind of trying to say... Uh, this is part of the culture, so the text messages that he'd been exposed no. for, which used a lot of this language, were not anything abnormal. So he's yeah. kind of saying, I was just doing what was part of the culture, but it wasn't uh, reflected in my behaviour was what he was trying to say. Has there been any response to those sort of statements or claims from NT police that you've seen from the commissioner? The, the police today have um, begun some kind of inquiry process so, I mean, you know, it's it's another inquiry, right? Um, we're used to those. But um, certainly, I mean, it, it's obvious, it's been obvious from the evidence so far as well 
previously that there is a cultural problem in the police in the in the Northern Territory, and I think uh, I feel pretty confident in saying that um, both you and I have probably seen things that suggest uh, similar, if maybe not quite as you know. I've never seen anything as bad as some of the stuff that's come out of this uh, coronial inquest, but. You know, there's obviously cultural problems in the WA police as well. Yeah, and I mean, who, who knows? We've we've got our own inquest coming up in WA in July into the police shooting of um, Yamaji woman, um, JC, um, whose sister I know very well, and I, as a result of that, sat through the um, entirety of the murder trial um, a couple of years ago for um, for Joyce, rest in peace. Um, which ultimately resulted in the same outcome, the acquittal on all counts of the police officer involved. Um, Des spoke a little about that earlier um, and sort of some of the some of the impacts for the community of decisions like that. Um, maybe the coronal inquest provides a chance to sort of dig a little deeper into the circumstances and cultures and systems surrounding that. The trial itself kind of concentrated largely on about six seconds um, before Joyce was fatally shot. But I think, you know, the... the days and weeks and months before that when she'd been recently released from a mental hospital um, only a couple of days prior without any additional supports had been homeless for years and you know was a product of um, intergenerational trauma um, and family violence I think possibly some of those deeper roots can be kind of can be unpicked through the inquest process in a way that the criminal trial doesn't allow so we'll see Um, Mm -hmm. maybe maybe more will come out around the circumstances of that one too um, mm. But obviously, Des, you know, is firmly of the view that the WA police is basically a racist institution. Mm. And why would anyone argue based on yeah. the based on the output? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think that yeah, the more that we can bring in those kind of broader connections between, you know, all of these these traumas, these ongoing traumas going back a long, long time, and then these kind of incidents that we hear about in the media or whatever in the media in the courts where as you say they they kind of um start very recently in time when they're going back from the incident um i think it's that kind of zoom out zoom out picture that's actually going to hopefully see some change but it's got to be big change right i think that's the difficult thing here is that to really change things we need big fundamental changes and as you say uh the ruling the ruling elites aren't necessarily so keen on those so Indeed. That's where we've got to go. Yeah. Um, As um, the new nightly newspaper from Seven West Media proclaimed in the opening line of their editorial, their first editorial yesterday, Australia is at a crossroads. So um, even the mainstream middle who they aspire to represent seem to perceive that something is amiss. Um, Dark forces are gathering and we um, we need all the brave torchbearers we can find to, to shine the lights into the dark corners. You know what we need? We need a little bit of common sense. <laughs> I think that's what we need. No, no longer as common <laughs> as it once was, tragically. Yeah. yeah. So uh, those who may not know, we talked about this last week, kind of anticipating the launch of The Nightly, the new publication from Seven West Media, a nightly digital online newspaper, which is just as terrible as it sounds. Uh, mm. There have been now two editions Jesse, have you have you perused the pages? The I have. I've got. I've got. I've, I've got to be honest. I, I clearly haven't been spending tonight very wisely so far because I haven't made it to the um to the unopenable digital browser edition of the nightly for Tuesday. Um, I did spend a bit of time dipping into it yesterday. Um, the editorial from line one had me glued. Um, a really sort <laughs> of like slightly pretty sort of bleak and threatening um, premonition. It kind of provided for the sort of coverage it's going to give, and then noting this sort of 
the exclusive distribution of fossil fuel companies and mining and resources companies advertising in the pages, you get a pretty clear sense that the um, the investment money from some of those companies is being well rewarded in terms of the advertising placement and presumably the coverage that will follow is um, mm. is going to hew pretty closely to some of those to some of those interests. Uh, what did you reckon? Oh, well, look, I mean, first thing is I thought it was pretty hard to read the bloody thing. Like, I just find that reading the digital edition of a paper is never a pleasant experience and the only reason you do it is to see what's in the print paper and there's no print paper here, so what's the point? Like, it's just you've got yeah. to zoom in, you've got to zoom out, you got to... You can't yeah, no one's, no one's ever really nailed it. I don't, yeah, I mean, the, the West is um, just as bad and the Australian doesn't even really bother in my experience. Like, you can get the digital paper, but you kind of... You, there's yeah, little to gain from doing so. Um yeah, it's it's a funny one. They've had quite a while to figure this out how to transpose, you know, the printed page onto onto a digital format, and no one really seems to have figured out how to do it in a particularly attractive or kind of easy to easy to access mm. way. I do think maybe if you had an iPad, it might be easier. But like, who has an iPad these days? Well, the the the, the 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 target market of the <laughs> the nightly, no doubt, the mainstream middle <laughs> and working class economic conservatives. Um, yes, certainly. The only person I know with an iPad. Um, who isn't a graphic designer is my uncle who subsists exclusively on a diet of the Australian and also surprisingly the Guardian. He gets both right. digital editions beamed live to him on the iPad. Um, so I don't know whether he's um, got the nightly on his radar yet, but it would be well. well his the alley. nightly, the nightly being uh, socially progressive, economically conservative, might kind of just shoot right through the middle there. Maybe he'll get the best of both worlds in one package. You never indeed, know. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> um, yeah. So I mean. I don't know the the kind of the, the, the meat um, between the meat and the sandwich seems to be fairly thin thus far. Mm. They've um they've picked up you know a couple of columnists who've left in disgrace from other publications. Um, but it was really as I say the editorial that that stuck out to me. Um, a sort of a, a fairly dark intro, and then um, just seemed to kind of spend the second half almost entirely preoccupied with a federal court decision from about six weeks ago, which for the new launch of a national newspaper um, coming out on a daily basis seems to be um, a little behind the a little behind the news cycle. But I mm. guess um, clearly the, um, the editor feels otherwise. Well, yeah, look, let me read a few lines here. Uh, Anthony DeSegli writes, Australia should be competing on the world stage, but instead industry is hobbled by overzealous environmental bodies which have been overtaken by fanatics. What was once a Bob Hawke-inspired environmental movement to protect national treasures such as the Franklin River and Kakadu has devolved into a small group of callow radicals not above hoodwinking Indigenous peoples to carry out their own cynical agendas. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. He's got away with words. It's very lyrical. So much for the entrepreneurial spirit embodied by those tycoons of industry who put us on the map, he goes on to say a few sentences later, which, I mean, pretty much literally just means Gina Reinhart, who's paying for the fucking thing. <laughs> who's paying for the paper, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, whose face is on the front page directly underneath the editorial in, yeah. the, in the, the first ad. <laughs> so do you know any uh, fanatics who've overtaken overzealous environmental bodies or do you know any callow radicals who've hoodwinked any Indigenous people lately? Uh, I mean, I know some people have been accused of, of both. He makes it out makes it out to be a fairly sort of fairly powerful and shadowy elite of um of yeah a cabal of um of fringe extremists who seem to be capable of almost anything, uh, which is yeah. which is fairly flattering. But as as I say, like I mean, this is basically seems to be targeting specifically the um 
you know, industrial regulations that have stopped a couple of gas projects going ahead over the past few months, um, the most recent one being overturned in a federal court decision um, in early January. And like I say, I mean, it's not as though <laughs> it's not as though um, that decision has suffered from a shortage of mainstream media attention thus far, um, least no. of all in the West Australian, the sister paper or whatever of this one. Yeah. So it does, it does feel um, a fairly strong statement of intent to haul it up out of the closet over several paragraphs, um, you know, months later, in the in the mission statement of this of this new nightly newspaper. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the the other kind of weird thing here is the vaguely threatening tone in this line yeah. that they keep using of, "You've got to use your evenings wisely," which means you've got to read the nightly. And there was quite an evocative cartoon of someone kind of despairingly looking at the, their phone, looking at the nightly on their phone in the first edition, which was probably my favourite part. But um, oh, I Another just... newspaper. Jiminy Jim, Jim Cricket. Yeah. Not another one. I also just struggled to see how one of the main stories they ran with yesterday was a story about how the sitcom Two and a Half Men was <laughs> offensive, but not as offensive as some of the stuff you hear now. So... It's all good. I think that's the kind of socially progressive, uh, the socially progressive wing of this thing coming through. But I just yeah, struggle to yeah, see yeah, about yeah. how reading the about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's the best way to spend my evening. Sorry, Anthony DeSegli. I just think you've got uh, you've got to do better than that. Truly. Yeah, yeah. yeah also, yeah. I don't really want to spend my evening rereading the same. Um, editorials that I read that morning in the West Australian. So Yeah, I mean, this is the thing, right? I guess it's sort of partially accounting for a time difference, East Coast, West Coast. Uh, obviously, as we discussed last week, it's primarily, probably exclusively an attempt by Seven Western Kerry Stokes to extend political influence outside of WA to the East Coast in a more concentrated way. Um, I thought Bernard Keane made a pretty strong case in Crikey during the week that it shows the weakness of Channel 7 on the East Coast as a lever for Kerry to pull to try and get the politicians in Canberra doing what he wants. Obviously, the nightly new newscast is no longer the power it was and no longer commands the audience it had, so maybe they reckon a nightly newspaper is the way to do it. Um, <laughs> I think it's a, a fairly limited historical um, ambition and intelligence that's on display. I, I, I reckon this one's got 12 months tops. I know, yeah. I know they can prop it up indefinitely thanks to Gina and Chris Ellison and the Minres Millions, if not the Mindaroo millions, because I did note they took a big swing um, twiggy in the opening in the opening edition as well. <laughs> yeah. But I just can't see it. Like it's just I, I cannot see this one picking up an audience. I really can't. It's very hard yeah. to see your average suburban mum or dad or you know granddad or grandma in the eastern suburbs or western suburbs of any east coast city. Um, yeah, putting putting down you know whatever other ways they might spend there hard-earned evenings to um to pick up the phone or the iPad to try and, yeah, try yeah. and um, enhance the text large enough to read on this one. Yeah. And I think another point that, you know, plenty of people have made before is that these um, resources companies that are doing a lot of the sponsorship, your Hancock and your Woodside and whatever, they don't sell their product to consumers. They don't sell their product to the people who are actually reading this paper. They sell it overseas. So... You know, they're advertising to A, build their social license, but it seems like in this instance, perhaps also to just put a little bit of investment into, you know, a media organ that's going to kind of push the line. I noticed yesterday there was a full page ad for Woodside. And then today or tonight, there was a quite a positive full page article at Woodside's uh, earnings report with a very 
nice which would which would down 37 percent or something right yes but that kind of wasn't the uh wasn't the angle they went for uh full of energy is the headline that they've got here Mm. with a uh, photo of Meg O'Neill. Woodside boss Meg O'Neill says there's no hurry for the Perth-based oil and gas giant to expand after the failure of its proposed merger deal with Santos. And there's a kind of a, a pull quote. We are always going to be looking for ways to properly grow the business, but there's no urgency for us to do anything. So a fairly positive spin there, I yeah. reckon. Yeah, no comment. Um, cool. Well, I mean, that's... Um, yeah, that's that's the nightly for tonight. Tune in tomorrow night for another um another unpackaging of um of tomorrow's <laughs> paper, I suppose. Um, I don't know whether uh, if if the if the imperative is to spend one's evening wisely, whether um, people will feel they're better off getting it first hand or second hand from from us <laughs> or from the from the iPad itself. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe we 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 better not. Uh... Make this a make this a regular segment. Yeah. <laughs> so I think we've given we've given the nightly enough of our enough yeah. of our attention now. Not 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 the pump. Um, yeah, indeed. Um, well, yeah. All I all I can say is um, I take up enough of my evening waiting for the West front page to drop on Twitter, as I've said before. So I don't think I can really be sitting around at three in the afternoon making my way through this one on a on a regular basis. Um, but probably worth keeping an eye on just to get an understanding of what. Kerry and the West Coast Resources Gang are trying to push over east at any given time. For sure. Thanks to everyone who or anyone who has made it through this episode of The Last Place on Earth. It's been great to have you with us. Uh, We've got plenty more to come. We're hoping to bring you plenty more interviews like tonight's. Thanks to Des for joining us, giving up his time and talking to us, and to uh, his brother Fred as well. Thank you to both of them. Thanks to our very first Patreon paid subscriber uh, listening from what is truly the last place on earth, somewhere off the Gibb River Road in the Kimberley. Uh, so thank you to, to that person. And if you want to join them, you can uh, go to lastplaceonearth.com.au and you can become a Patreon subscriber. Very good. Thanks, boss. Thanks, Nixie. Say hi to the kids. Um, and I guess we will see each other next week, maybe um, maybe with some more interviews in the can by then. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, Jesse. All right. Take it easy. See ya. Absolutely awesome. Thank you for everything, Perth. It has been a blast.